0: And today we're going to start talking about the family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it's going to be a really pivotal presentation today. In fact, I would say that in many ways, as I was preparing for this week's presentation, that a correct understanding of the Bible, a correct understanding of the whole of Scripture hinges in significant degree on a correct understanding of what we're going to talk about today, the call of Abraham. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, your faithfulness is great. And that's not only something that we believe, it's not only something that we believe, it's something that we love to sing. And Father, we have just sung not only with our mouths, but we have sung from our hearts, we have sung from our spirit. And today as we turn our attention toward that great place of faithfulness, you and your goodness and your heart and your character, Father, may we be buoyed, may we be strengthened, may we be encouraged. And when we feel faithless, when we feel aimless, Father, may we look to you. You are not only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are today the God of Kingscliff, the God of this church, of the families that worship here and of this community. So please, Father, we don't want to worship an old, antiquated dusty, dead God. Today we worship the living God. You are not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so as we turn our attention to you, may you turn our affections toward you, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen. All right, let's talk a little bit about that transition, and wh- what have we learned so far? Let's sort of recap here. Let's see if my... Great. So today we're talking about the call of Abraham and Abraham is such a centrally important figure in scripture that we're actually going to have two presentations on Abraham. Today the call of Abraham and the next Sabbath I'll be speaking about the covenant with Abraham. Uh, If time allowed and if I had my way uh, with the calendar and, and with the preaching schedule we would probably do a whole series just on Abraham. The importance of him and of the role that he plays not just in Scripture but in in the redemptive plan that God has for the world is literally inestimable. It's just gigantic. Um, What have we learned so far? Well we spent five presentations in the first chapter beginning and sort of I thought it would be well for us to take stock of where we're at. We opened with a presentation that I sort of did on the introduction to the Old Testament, how do we read the Old Testament And we talked about Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Christ as a part of the larger story that the scripture narrative is telling. And uh, then we had a presentation on creation, which is of course Genesis 1 and 2. Big themes there that God is creative and God is communicative. How he not only makes the painting, but he creates the canvas upon which the painting goes. Uh, Then I just listened yesterday, actually, to Ty's sermon on the fall, and I felt really good about that sermon for two reasons. Number one, it was over an hour, so I was really happy to see that there are other people in there who can't even say their name in 30 minutes, Um, but it was also just a fantastic sermon, really good, just a great, great, great introduction, not only to the consequences of the fall, as Scripture paints it. But I really loved the way that Ty developed the beauty of the picture that God had intended before he ever got to the bad news, and I uh, really like that. Jared then had a great sermon on the promise of the gospel, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And then just last Sabbath, we had uh, Jeffrey Rosario here, and uh, he spoke about the flood and Babel, but as I listened to that sermon, he spoke a lot more about the flood. He spoke about Babel about the last four minutes, and uh, To his significant credit, his sermon was under an hour, but he didn't really cover what I asked him to cover either, did he? So now that we've sort of dealt with these big themes, Genesis chapters 1 to 11, we're ready for our transition into the next chapter. And we're going to be talking about the family. We're going to talk in just a moment here about the structure of the book of Genesis and why it is built the way it is built. But I thought it might be well for you to sort of know what are the sermons, what are the presentations that we're going to talk about under this chapter heading, and there will be nine of them, I think, or ten of them, excuse me. Uh, Today we're going to do the call of Abraham. Next Sabbath, the covenant with Abraham. Then Hagar and Ishmael, Lot. We'll have a presentation on Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the offering of Isaac, the marriage of Isaac, the birthright, which will be about uh, Esau and uh, Jacob. The man who became Israel is Genesis 32, the transition from from Yaakov or Jacob to Israel and then we'll have a two-part series on Jacob. Uh, Joseph, thank you. So basically where we're going is we're gonna spend 10 presentations on the rest of the book of Genesis and today we begin um, what is a really fascinating little transition in the book of Genesis. Notice what I put up on the screen here. Clearly as you just look at the structure and the pace of the book of Genesis, Moses is moving purposefully and speedily to get to the story of Abraham now we might have mentioned this before but it bears repeating that there are whole nations and peoples and families and dynasties mentioned in the opening 11 chapters of Genesis that we know nothing about and Moses doesn't seem particularly inclined to tell us much about them He'll say, so-and-so built a city, and -and so-and-so had many cattle, and -and so-and-so made musical instruments, and -and so-and-so. But apart from these sort of shallow, introductory, perfunctory details, Moses feels no particular burden to go into an exhaustive, encyclopedic history of these people, and their families, and their cities, and their dynasties, dynasties, and their countries. He just sort of mentions them. But... When we get to Genesis chapter 12, there's a major transition that takes place. And I want you to take a look at this little graph, this little uh, schematic that I put up on the screen here. The opening 11 chapters of Genesis, that's what we've talked about so far, Genesis chapters 1 to 11. If you were to think about the major events that Scripture relates as taking place in the opening 11 chapters of Genesis, you would basically come up with four events. Okay, here they are. You have creation takes place in Genesis 1 and 2. You have the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. You have, um, you could also include Genesis chapter 4 in that, the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Uh, Then you have the flood and the tower of Babel. Now just let that sink in. Four events, creation, fall, flood, and Babel covering or traversing between 1500 and 2000 years of human history and only 11 chapters. Prior to my coming here to Australia, I read a number of books on Australian history, two and I'm halfway through the third. I thought it would be well for me to know a little bit about Australia, about the politics, about the founding of this country, and and I thought it would sort of make me, you know, be able to communicate with the locals The problem is, is that whenever I've tried to share what I thought was a great story from Australia's history or a great personality or an anecdote, Australians look at me blankly. I have to say I've been a little underwhelmed with your conversancy about your own history. And so after I had already read the first two books and was halfway through the third, I thought, well, there's no point reading the rest of this. Nobody knows what I'm going to talk about anyway. Now, here's the point in the relatively young nation of Australia when I say young of course the aboriginal peoples lived here long before the white settlers arrived in fact you probably may know that Australia is even by mainstream anthropological estimates the place where people have lived unmolested the longest right there were the aboriginal people here were for thousands and thousands of years by conventional standards it's something like close to a hundred thousand years sort of living very much the same way that they did when the first white people arrived now by biblical standards we'd say they've been here since shortly after the flood and the dispersion of humanity but but if you think about sort of white history here just just the arrival of the first white people to Australia it's it's a very young continent very young country like my own country the United States of America founded July 4th 1776 very young And yet, the volumes, the tomes, the series, the biographies and autobiographies that have been written about just one nation that is less than 250 years old would easily fill this room and more. And yet, when God sets out to give us a history of the earth, he doesn't do so in an encyclopedic fashion he doesn't he doesn't seem particularly concerned with Moses to give us every single detail of every single family in every single country in every single dynasty it is not a history textbook the Bible does contain history significant amounts of history But the book of Genesis races through some nearly 2,000 years of human history in 11 short chapters and basically gives us four events. There was creation, there was the fall, there was a global flood, and there was the Tower of Babel, full stop, that's it. 11 chapters done and dusted. Now a remarkable thing happens, and Jeffrey alluded to this last Sabbath. As soon as we get to Genesis chapter 12, Moses slams on the brakes and slows way down And over the course of the next 39 chapters, from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 50, it covers less than 300 years of human history. Now just let that sink in. Think about the basic structure or the basic architecture of the book of Genesis. Clearly what Moses is not doing is setting out an exhaustive history of the primordial earth. He's not an anthropologist. He's not a historian that's telling us how civilizations came and went and how dynasties rose and fall. That's not his interest. In fact, if anything, you get the feeling that Moses can't wait to get to the part that he thinks is really, really important for his audience, and that is he cannot wait to get to the story of a man named Abram, who would come to be called later Abraham. Now, in Genesis chapter 1 1 to 11, and especially Genesis chapters 3 to 11, Moses has painted a very specific picture. Not only giving us a historical sweep of the early earth, but he's given us a very important theological perspective on humanity. This is hugely important. In fact, the rest of scripture hinges on this theological perspective. I think I've mentioned in this church before, I'll say it again. One of the best known scholars in the Seventh-day Adventist church, the head of the Old Testament department at the seminary at Andrews University, has said, and I'm in complete harmony with him, Dr. Richard Davidson, a personal friend, He has essentially said that the entire Bible is Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And everything after Genesis 1, 2, and 3, in other words, from Genesis chapter 4 all the way through Revelation chapter 22, is basically commentary or expansion on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You have the whole story in three chapters, and then you have whole books and hundreds of chapters that unpack what takes place in those first three chapters. Well, in Genesis chapters 1 to 3, and especially chapters 3 to 11, Moses presents, again, not an encyclopedic history, but a very fascinating theological perspective on the human predicament. And you could describe, for simplicity's sake, and it will help us here today, to keep it slightly simple, you could describe the problem that Moses paints as existing in basically two dimensions. In the vertical orientation and the horizontal. Now, the vertical problem we're going to call the problem of Genesis chapter 3. The horizontal problem we're going to call the problem of Genesis chapter 11. Let me just kind of unpack this. The problem in Genesis chapter 3 is that man has been cut off from his creator and from his father and from his God. Arguably, one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible is the verse that says, And Adam hid himself from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." Here we see the very child of God, the son and daughter, Adam and Eve of God, not running to Him in, in childlike love and innocence, but actually fleeing from the presence of their Father and Creator and friend. Genesis 3 then introduces to us, and Ty did a great job of unpacking, that this is not merely a behavioral reality, but that there is something deeply psychological that has taken place in the human psyche, where we now experience emotions that we were never designed to experience. We weren't built to handle guilt. We weren't built to handle pain. We weren't built to handle shame. We weren't built to handle rejection. We weren't built to handle insecurity. And yet, the history of of the human race and the history of your own personal experience with this thing called life is one in which uh, 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 shame and unforgiveness and rejection and insecurity is a major part of everyone's story. But we weren't built to handle it. And Ty communicated, and he did a great job of doing so, that all of that stems from the fact that we are severed from the tree itself, from God. That this vertical severing, this vertical bifurcation between us and the source of life, our own Father, our own Creator, and our own Friend, has fundamentally disfigured us. I was particularly moved by one of Ty's pithy little quotes when he said, and it pierced me to my soul, it may have pierced you as well, when Ty said in his sermon a couple weeks ago that the common denominator in all of your bad and broken relationships is you do you remember him saying that the common denominator in all of our bad and broken relationships is not always the other person we're the common denominator something is fundamentally broken and Ty asked us to look in the mirror for a good 30 seconds every morning and say you are a crazy person do you remember that When I look at you, Blair, with that haircut and that beard, I am looking into the eyes of a crazy person. I feel the same way. When I look in the mirror, I see myself a crazy person. And so the problem of Genesis 3 that Moses paints is that humanity is fundamentally disfigured. It is cut off from its original intent, and so we have the problem of Genesis chapter 3. But as Moses paints this sort of anthropological theological picture of early earth he also paints the problem of Genesis 11 and the problem of Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel and there are two parts here. The first is human pride that leads to human ambition and human folly. That's a problem that every one of us faces. There's not a person in this room that doesn't wrestle with pride and ambition and at some level the folly that results from pride and ambition. But the second part is this. The story that the Tower of Babel tells is that when human pride reigns, when human pride is the prevailing force in the world, that that ultimately separates us from others. In the story of the Tower of Babel, God comes down and and artificially, contrivedly confuses the languages so that people are separated. So that people are no longer connected, that there's a fragmentation among humanity. And so when Moses sort of paints the story here in Genesis 11, he ends by saying that the people were scattered abroad over the face of all the earth. And so as Moses is preparing to introduce us to the man who in many ways is the hero of the story, Abraham, Before he ever gets to the story of Abraham, before he ever tells us what Abraham is the solution to, he first introduces us in a very profound and yet simple way to the problem. Man is severed from God and he is disconnected from himself and from his social setting. So the problem of Genesis 3, largely vertical. The problem of Genesis 11, largely horizontal. The world that we live in today is a world in which people are separated by a variety of artificial constraints. There's people that look darker skinned and people that are lighter skinned. There are people with a certain shape to their nose and people with another shape to their nose. There's people that speak a certain way and people that speak another way. People that live on that side of the mountain, this side of the mountain, that side of the river, this side of the river, that side of the valley, this side of the valley. Most of us are raised in some significant degree with a really important and inbuilt sense of us and them. And that us and them can take many different permutations and forms. It can be racial. There's us and them. We're this color, they're that color. It can be socioeconomic. We're the haves, they're the have-nots. Or conversely, we're the have-nots and they're the haves. It can be talent-based. We can think of ourselves as fundamentally better than or on the other end of the spectrum, worse than other people. We, We tend to see the world in terms of us and them. I'm from this country, they're from that country. I look this way, they look that way. And so this this idea of us and them is built into the very fiber and fabric of who we are. It's one of the things that the church is called to undo, to erase these artificial distinctions. But I'm getting ahead of the story. In Genesis chapter 11, I want you to really feel the force of this. Why don't we open there? Genesis chapter 11. I want you to feel the force of this contrast that Moses is clearly making. Now let me remind you that the chapterization and the versification of Scripture was added many, many years later. Moses didn't write the book of Genesis in chapters, right? He didn't set out and write chapter 1 and chapter 2. Certainly there are themes there that divide nicely into chapters, But if we allow Genesis chapter 11 to flow seamlessly into Genesis chapter 12, Moses is clearly making a point. And it's a point that you might miss if you see an artificial distinction between chapter number 11 and chapter number 12. Right at the end of Genesis chapter 11, or excuse me, right at the end of the story of the Tower of Babel before he gets into the descendants of Shem, it says this in verse 9, Genesis chapter 11 verse 9. Therefore, its name is called Babel, or confusion, because there the Lord God confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now, notice here up on the screen, that's Genesis 11: "Scattered abroad over the face of all the earth." After a list of Shem's descendants, Noah, excuse me, Moses now feels prepared to say these words, Genesis chapter 12 verse one now the Lord had said to Abram now I know I've already made this point but I want to make it again because the importance of it cannot be overstated in Genesis chapters 1 to 11 with the genealogies we have been treated to a very quick treatment of that person built a city that person had cattle that person made musical instruments that person had that many children this person had this many children we are racing through families racing through nations racing through dynasties but The moment that Moses gets to Abraham, he hits the brakes, and he's going to spend the next nearly 40 chapters giving us a lot of what seem like inconsequential and insignificant details about one man's family. Why? Why race through other families but spend so much time on this guy? We're going to find out why. Look at verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, the first two words, now I don't know if you're in the habit of marking in your Bible, but if you are, I would invite you to write, to write a box or an underline or a squiggly mark or something around those two words, get out. The whole biblical story, in many ways, can be reduced to those two words, get out. It's a consistent biblical theme, get out, the call out. In fact, you actually see it right here on our own sort of trajectory for our seven chapters here notice the word exodus which comes from the latin ex, as well as exile which comes from the latin ex. just like our own word exit which means to get out this becomes a biblical theme god here is calling abraham out of something he later will call the descendants of abraham uh israel out of egypt jesus will then call his own disciples out of an apostate and rebellious Israel. And then when we come right down to the end book, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we read these words in Revelation chapter 18. God says, speaking to his people at the end of time, come out of her, Babylon, my people. Well, that whole idea of God calling a people out, God calling his people not only out of something but into something, is saturative in Scripture and goes all the way back to those two words right there. God appeared to Abraham, the first two words out of his mouth. This was a different man, it was a different circumstance, a different family, a different relationship, and the first thing that God says is, Get out. And that coming out theme, that Exodus theme, becomes a major motif in the whole of Scripture right down to the book of Revelation. Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And here's the key. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now hang on to that. Notice that just moments before, Abraham had finished telling, excuse me, Moses had finished telling us that following the confusion of the languages at the Tower of Babel, that all of the people were scattered abroad over all the earth. The families and the tribes and the the different groups were scattered, and you might even say Shattered fragmented pieces of dry pottery not fulfilling the original creational intent that God had had for humanity and the very next thing that takes place in Moses account is that God appears to a man and he essentially says I'm going to put all the families of the earth back together through you. The fragmentation, the scattering and the shattering in Genesis 3 to 11, Moses says Would be undone in some significant way by the promise and the call of this guy, Abraham. Promise to and call of this guy named Abraham. Now, what I want to do before we read much more, in fact, we're going to read very, we're not going to read much more, really, today in Genesis. We might spend a few more moments there. But let me just sort of give you a a brief tour de force of scriptures. Placement of Abraham at the very center of the story. We've mentioned before already that in the Old Testament, as far as the Jews were concerned, and really any reading of Scripture would yield the same conclusion, I believe, there are three looming figures in the Jewish mindset and in the biblical mindset in the Old Testament. Those looming figures are Abraham, Moses, and David. Abraham is the first chronologically. Though Moses is writing, he's writing retroactively about a story that came hundreds of years before him. Abraham. Moses, and later David. Abraham is absolutely central to the story, the whole story, and I want to show you that the New Testament writers, with their Christ-centered gospel glasses, when they looked back at the story, they saw Abraham as a crucial moment, as a crucial instance in which God interjected and interposed and injected himself into human history and made an arrangement made a call, made a promise to a man. It wasn't just a one-off. Abraham is not an insignificant figure like, like some of the other figures that are seemingly insignificant. Of course, no human is insignificant in the eyes of God. But these figures that Moses just races over quickly and tells us very little details about. No, 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 no. When it comes to Abraham, Moses says, hey, this guy is central. All of the Old Testament writers say this guy is central. What I want to show you here is that the New Testament writers said the same thing. In fact, the opening verse of the opening book of the New Testament, right, as that transition begins after the long silence following the book of Malachi before we get to the opening verse, opening chapter of Matthew, that long silence, how will that silence be broken? It's broken like this. It says the book of the genealogy of who? What's his name? Jesus Christ. Now watch this. The son of David, the son of who? Right, there's two of our figures right? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now watch this, where does Matthew begin the story? He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and of his brothers. Now many scholars believe, and they are probably correct, almost certainly correct, that Matthew was writing uh, a largely Jewish contextualized gospel to a largely Jewish audience. But be that as it may, Matthew felt that there was something absolutely essential in introducing Jesus, introducing his, his incarnation and his arrival into humanity, into, at earth, to earth, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, yes, as king he is, the son of David, we'll talk more about that when we get to the kings, but he says, the son of Abraham. Now Matthew then tells a story, and it's a story that we don't have time to sort of recapitulate here, but I'll give you the, the very short version. In the opening chapters of Matthew, scholars have noted that Matthew tells the story of Jesus in a way that recapitulates the history of national Israel. That all of these sort of serendipitous, coincidental little things seem to be happening to Jesus, but but as Matthew tells the story, they're not coincidental or serendipitous at all. They're intentional. They're purposeful. So just as in the days of Israel... There was a a king who became very angry and wroth and babies were slaughtered in the wake of his wrath. So too with Jesus. Just as, as, as in the days of Israel, there was a young man by the name of Joseph who had dreams. And when that man, Joseph, had dreams, the child Jesus was brought into the land of Egypt where he remained for a time. So too in the life of Jesus. Matthew tells the story of the earthly father of Jesus. His name is Joseph. He has dreams and the angel appears to him and says, take the child, the young boy, into Egypt. He remains in Egypt for a time, and then as the Israel story unfolds, it says, I have called my son Israel out of Egypt. Well, Matthew does a remarkable thing. He takes that very verse from Hosea, out of Israel I have called my son, and he applies it to Jesus because an angel appears to Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, and says, Herod who sought the boy's life is dead, bring him out of Egypt. You see, these seemingly serendipitous little coincidental happenings are resulting in a grand mosaic, a picture that Matthew is painting, and it's a picture with great intentionality. As the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea. When Matthew tells the story, when Jesus comes out of Egypt, the next thing that he shows us in Matthew chapter 3 is Jesus passing through the Red Sea of Baptism, Just as Jesus, after the Red Sea experience, they went through the 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus goes through his Red Sea experience and has 40 days in the wilderness. Just as Israel uh, was given the book of Deuteronomy to to encourage them and to buoy them and to strengthen them in their wilderness wanderings, Jesus is tempted three times in Matthew chapter 4. And with each temptation, he meets it with a resounding and resolute, It is written, it is written, it is written, and always from the book of Deuteronomy. The children of Israel came out of their initial wilderness wanderings to a mountain called Mount Sinai where they received the law. Jesus comes through his wilderness wanderings after Matthew chapter 4 and we encounter him in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 where he starts saying things like, You have heard that it was said by them of old you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. What is Jesus doing there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? He is sitting atop the New Testament Sinai, handing out the law, explaining the law, interpreting the law. I mean, Matthew is telling a story, and what a story it is. It's a story where Jesus, again, seemingly coincidentally, happenstance is actually, in retrospect, as Matthew looked at the story, Jesus wasn't just coincidentally happening from this town to this town, from this place to this place, and from this event to this event. Jesus was, with great purpose, retracing and recapitulating the history of his own people, Israel. Oh, Matthew has a story to tell. And when Matthew tells that story, he tells it again and again with the word fulfilled. It was fulfilled, it was fulfilled, it was fulfilled, and always fulfilled in Christ. Now here's a remarkable thing. At the end of Matthew chapter 7 where Matthew records that when Jesus finished his speaking the people were astonished because they'd never heard anybody talk like this before. Jesus is recorded as going down, healing a leper, and the very next thing that Matthew records in Matthew chapter 8 is a remarkable thing. Jesus is entering a city and he encounters a Roman centurion. Now the Roman centurion, and we've talked about this briefly here before, would have been hated on a number of levels. Number one, he was a Gentile. Number two, he was a Roman. Number three, he was a soldier. And number four, he was a leader of soldiers. So Jesus has every reason to despise this guy. He has every reason to ignore this person and no reason culturally, seemingly to interact with him. And yet, When the centurion realizes that this is this provocative young rabbi approaching, he approaches Jesus and says, I have a servant, somebody that I care for deeply in my house who is sick. Would you come and heal him? To which Jesus responds and says, yes, to everyone's utter astonishment, but the scandal is only beginning. When Jesus says, yes, I will come, the man protests and shows his tremendous faith when he says, no, 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 no. I know who you are and I'm a man like you. I tell people to go and they go. I tell people to come and they come. I tell people to do this and they do it. You are a man of authority. You can just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus picks his jaw up off the ground, reattaches it to his head and says, watch what he says here in Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Reattaches the jaw to his face and says, assuredly I say to you, I have not found such great faith Not even in Israel. Now watch what he says. As people are standing around saying, are you kidding me? Did our Messiah, who's supposed to be planning and plotting and strategizing how to chop the heads off of these kind of people? Right? Not just a Gentile, not just a Roman, not just a soldier, but a leader of soldiers. Did our Messiah just compliment a Roman? and a Roman centurion, and a Roman soldier, and the answer is yes, and yes, and yes, but the scandal is just beginning. Not only does he say, not only have I not seen such great faith in the whole of Israel, what he says next is astonishing, and notice where Jesus places Abraham. Notice the story that Jesus is telling. I got news for you, he would have said to the people who would have been standing around in utter incredulity. You think that's astonishing? I say to you that many, what's the word everyone? Many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the remarkable thing. We just read moments ago when God appears to Abram. When God appears to Abram and says those first two words. And what were those first two words that God said to Abram? What were they? They were, get out. He says, get out. Because I'm going to do something really awesome. I'm going to do something really awesome through you, Abram. And he says, get out. And and at the close of his initial invitation to Abram, he says, I'm going to bless all the world through you. Not just Jews. Not just us. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to bless them, and I'm going to bless them, and I'm going to bless them. And don't miss the significance here. Jesus retraces, recapitulates the history of national Israel. He goes up to the top of the New Testament Sinai, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And when Jesus comes down from Sinai, one of the very first events that Matthew records him doing is affirming non-Jewish peoples in the strongest possible language. And Abraham's at the center of the story. Notice the next one. This is from the book of Galatians, which we've been studying in my small group Thursday nights at my house. Just really loving it. We just went through Galatians 3 and a little bit of 4 this last week. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, Scripture foresaw that God would save the who? Notice that foresaw. It means it saw in advance. Scripture saw in advance that God would save the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance when it said, all nations will be blessed through you. Hey, we just read that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. 3. Paul is looking back and saying, hey, something happened there. When God called Abram, man, it was a new order of business. There was a new sheriff in town. Something new was taking place here. We go from flood to we go from creation to fall to flood to Babel and then Abraham. Something is significantly and singularly important about this guy named Abraham and Paul, many thousands of years later, would look back and say, "Hey, when God said to Abram, all the nations will be blessed because of you." He said he was preaching the gospel. Staying in Genesis 3, look at this. Verses 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are who? Who's that right there? Abraham's, and what's that word, that underlined word? You're Abraham's descendants, and you're heirs according to singular definite article, the promise. Not just a promise. Some general promise of God to fix your toaster when it's broken or to help you to have somebody give you a ride when your tire is flat or to you know help you to feel better because you're not whatever you know we love these general promises of god for health and well-being as if god is some sort of a slot machine that just sort of helps us out of the difficult times pull 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 get the answer we want we're good no this isn't a general promise he says whoa when you're christ you are actually a descendant of abraham and you become a fulfillment of the promise what promise The promise that God would reverse the problem of Genesis 3 and the problem of Genesis 11, that he would put the world back together. Man, this guy's a looming figure, isn't he? One more New Testament passage here. Romans 4, 16 and 17. The promise is of faith that it might be according to grace. Grace, what? So that it might be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, in other words, not only the Jews, but to the Roman centurions as well, but also to those who are of faith, of the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. I love that idea there that Abraham is not just the father of the Jewish nation. In fact, we actually see that in the New Testament. Several instances Jesus interacts with religious leaders of his day and they assert their standing with God by saying, we have Abraham as our father. To which Jesus could have responded and Paul does respond and say, yes, and so does everyone else. Abraham is the father of all nations. Now with this sort of perspective on the, gigantic centrality of Abraham let's just look back briefly at the three early figures of scripture Adam Noah and Abraham and notice with me that in each instance God's command and promise was was the same God said to Adam in the garden of Eden to Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply he gave them the garden and he said fill it but don't miss that land and descendants that was God's promise to Adam Here's the garden, expand it, and fill it. God then later appears to Noah after the flood, and the very first words that God says to Noah when he steps off of the ark is, be fruitful and multiply. Here's the new earth, Noah. Here's the new land, washed and extinguished of all of its evil, be fruitful and multiply. Here's the land, fill it with descendants. Unsurprisingly then, Moses is telling the same story. When Moses gets to the story of Abraham, he says again and again and again, God appears to Abraham and he says, I'll give you the land and your descendants will be as the stars of the heaven. I will give you the land and your descendants will be as the sand of the sea. I will give you the land and your descendants will be of many nations. Land and descendants, land and descendants, land and descendants. The story is always the same. The call of Abraham says Moses is God's answer to the sin of Adam. And I would say this today, Kingscliff Seventh Avenue Church and visitors, members and visitors, if you could lodge one idea in your brain that would infect and affect the rest of your reading of Scripture from this day until the day that you breathe your last breath, I would want to infect your brain with this idea: that the call of abraham was so central to the plan of god that moses actually saw the call of abraham as god's answer to the sin of adam both the vertical and the horizontal dimensions a severing from god and a fragmenting and separating from those around us i'm going to come back to that as we close shortly Moses is saying that God will put creation back together through Abraham and his family, both vertically and horizontally. Through Abraham, says Moses, God will solve the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of the sin problem. Listen to this fantastic quotation from one of my favorite modern theologians, a man by the name of N.T. Wright, in his excellent book, Justification. Listen to this. Paul declares that the promise to Abraham and his family was not merely that they would inherit the land... But what will they inherit? What's that word right there? The world. In other words, this isn't just for the Jews. This is for the people from PNG. This is for the people from Indonesia. This is for the people from Australia. This is for the people from Europe. This is for the people from Africa. That that something would happen with Abraham that would cause Abraham and his descendants to inherit the whole world. This is exactly the point, says N.T. Wright. Whereas the whole world had been cursed through Adam and Eve... Through human pride, which led to Babel, the Tower of Babel, the Creator God would now bring blessing to the same whole world. That was the point of the covenant. This is what we're going to talk about next week, and I'm already geeked up about it. God's plan, God's single plan, always was to set the world right, to undo Genesis 3 and 11. I just want to pause briefly and say something. I love the fact that N.T. Wright emphasizes here God's single plan, because there is, and perhaps to some degree even in our own congregation here always a sense when you read the Old Testament that there is a major distinction between the Old and the New Testament that whatever God was doing there it's clearly not what God is doing here you read the New Testament you have this nice amicable approachable avuncular Jesus you know he's a great guy he's hanging out with prostitutes and and tax collectors and publicans he's approachable he's accessible he's wonderful he's cool he's kind he's all of those things And we say, that's what God is doing in the New Testament. But we don't know what he's doing in the Old Testament, right? Wipe them out, man, woman, and child. Take over the land. You know, people touch the ark, reach out and place their hand on the ark, and they're immediately smitten dead. We don't know what's going on in the Old Testament, many of us. But we're sure we know what's going on in the New Testament. And this has created an imbalance in a great many well-meaning but ultimately misguided Even biblically literate Seventh-day Adventists and other Christians, they skew their reading of the Bible, they skew their understanding of the gospel, and they skew their understanding of what God is doing in the world to be largely, or in some cases entirely, a New Testament phenomenon. But I want to tell you something. The New Testament makes no sense apart from the Old Testament. None, zero, not at all. This is exactly why we're taking a look at the Old Testament this year because we want to look and say, wait a minute, was God doing the old mean thing in the Old Testament now he's doing the nice, sweet, graceful thing? Right? Many of us are afraid of the Old Testament and in the interest of full disclosure, there are passages in the Old Testament that I am afraid of. I purposely requested to preach on those passages as we go through the year and so we'll see if I remain afraid of them at the end. I may be just as afraid then as I am now, but the point is this, What I love here is that the plan of God to save the world and to put creation back together was not something fundamentally distinct between the Old and the New Testaments. N.T. Wright says it was the same plan. It was God's single plan to heal the world through this man named Abraham. Watch the final part of the quotation here. Sin and the fracturing of human society which result from that sin. I'm going to close on that in just a few moments here. To bring about a new creation through Abraham slash Israel, and as the fulfillment of this Abraham-Israel-shaped plan to do it through who? Who's this this right here? To do it through Jesus. To heal both this, the vertical dimension of the Genesis problem, Genesis 3, and the horizontal dimension, the severing from one another. Now, I've already read these verses, and I'm not going to read them all again, but I do want to quickly, quickly, quickly show you something interesting. Notice that in each of these instances, when Abraham makes an appearance, the point that the New Testament writer is making is that humanity is being healed, not just vertically, but horizontally. When Jesus affirms the Roman centurion and he says, hey, I got news for you. You think this is amazing? You think this is scandalous? You think this is crazy that I just affirmed a Gentile who was a Roman, who was a soldier, who was the leader of soldiers? You think that's crazy? I got to tell you something many will come from the east and the west. That is, to the east of Jerusalem and the west of Jerusalem. That was just a way of saying non-Jews. Many non-Jews will come and will sit down. And here's the remarkable thing. At the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is saying, whatever God is doing through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whatever God was doing in that covenant that he made with that family, it's going to put the earth back together, not just in your own personal relationship with Jesus, but in your social interactions, in the way that you deal with people, in the way that you view other human beings, God will put the earth back together. Notice this one. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. We already read it, but look at it again here. All nations will be blessed through you. God would save the Gentiles by faith. This is one that we've already read, but we need to quickly revisit it. Here, Paul tackles Paul tackles the three most fundamental Demarcation, social and and observational distinctions that existed in his day, he says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. What? That was the most fundamental us and them demarcation that existed in the first century: Jews and Gentiles, us and them, circumcised and uncircumcised. Paul says, nope, it's done, it's gone. Jesus erased that. Well, as if that's not enough, and he says, and there's neither slave or free. In other words, rich or poor. The haves and the have-nots, he says, erased, done, it's artificial, it's, it's not a legitimate demarcation between, between different people, it's erased, Jesus erased that. And then, perhaps most astonishing of all, Jesus says, neither is there male or female, and some people scratch their head about that and say, well, I'm looking around the room, I see some really nice looking ladies, I see some handsome men, what do you mean there's not male or female? And this is an interesting point. I share this with my Galatians group on Thursday, I don't have time to get into the details here, but I will say this. Let me just give you something to chew on, a little bite-sized piece to chew on, especially for those of you that are theologians. In the Old Testament dispensation, it was the male alone who bore the covenant sign. Circumcision. You got it? The firstborn male was circumcised on the eighth day. So in the Old Testament, there there was this inbuilt theological distinction between men and women. Men and women, the men bore the covenant sign. The women were still had access to the covenant they still they could still follow and, and be members of the covenant community, but in some sense, it must have created an inequality or a disparity between the men who bore in their flesh the actual covenant sign, the, 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 the indication they were covenant part of the covenant community, and the women not so much. but you know what 's so interesting and i didn 't quote the verse here because it 's the verse actually just before this verse twenty seven says If you're baptized, then you're Christ's. And if you're Christ's, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, neither is there male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant community. When you're baptized, you're entering into the covenant community. And here's the great thing. That is a sign that men and women participate in equally. So there's this great little point that Paul is making here as he's busy with the gospel brush just erasing social distinctions. Oh, cultural erased, linguistic erased, theological erased, sexual erased, financial erased. He's just erasing these cultural distinctions. And one of the most significant ones is that he says that, that sign of, of what could have been a sign of male pride that they bore in their own bodies, the sign of covenant membership, he says, erased because now men and women both baptized, each bearing equally the sign of covenant membership. Beautiful. And he says, look, you're all descendants of Abraham, and you're heirs according to the promise. The promises of faith, we've already read this one, not just for the Jews, but to all of those who exercise faith like Abraham, while well, he's made him a father of all nations. Ellen White was right on to this. One of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And man, I love the fact that I can pick up a book by a modern theologian, one of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, I can pick that up and I can read it and be like, yes! And then I can go back and read something that was written in 1891 and say, yes! Because it's the same. I'm telling you, the Seventh-day Adventist Church does not have a copyright on the truth. Can somebody say amen to that? We have elements of truth, we have aspects of truth that are very important and particularly important for this time in earth's history, but that doesn't mean that God is not with the Anglicans, that God is not with the Lutherans, that God is not with the Baptists, that God is not with the Pentecostals, and that God is not with others. Can you say amen? Truth is truth. If Ellen White said it, it's true. And if David says it and it's true, it's true. If, if, if N.T. Wright says it and it's true, it's true, right? God is not only giving truth to a certain little parochial group of people, no, no. All truth belongs to God. All truth is his truth. All beauty is his beauty. And we should celebrate truth and celebrate beauty and celebrate sincerity wherever we find it. Well, I happen to find it in this great quotation from 1891 where Ellen Wright wrote in the book, in the, in the um, magazine, Signs of the Times. Look at this. The terms of this, what is that word right there? I bolded it. The terms of this oneness, this unity, this connection. Between God and man in the great covenant of redemption. That's what we're going to talk about next week. We're arranged with Christ from all eternity. Whoa, where did that oneness come from? Watch this. The covenant made with what? Abraham. Why don't you read this with me? The covenant made with Abraham is the. I'll say it again, say it again. Is the very same gospel which is preached to us. And let me, know how, let, me, let me let you know how I know that Ellen White had it exactly square with what we're presenting today. She then quotes this verse, Galatians 3.8. We've already read it. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham long before when he said, Get out, Abraham. Get out. Get out of your father's house. Get out of your father's country because I'm going to do something special. I'm going to do something big. I'm going to do something Awesome through you and in you and in you and in your descendants all the nations will be blessed. Ellen White says, "Man, God made that plan from eternity past. God's plan to do that, he did a whole long time ago." And I want to land the plane on this on this point. When we read the rest of the Old Testament and part of the New as well, we find God identifying himself in a most singularly unusual way. Right? not the mighty the strong not even the forgiving right not even just the gracious and there are many monikers and titles for god in the old testament but the one that he seems most inclined to the one that resonates most deeply with his heart is when god refers to himself he says oh oh you're confused about who i am oh i'm the god of abraham and of isaac and of jacob I'm the God of a family. God's own identification as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob shows his commitment to the human family. The messy, difficult, strange, weird, wild, idiosyncratic, highly confusing family of Abraham. Very similar probably to your own family. It also shows God's commitment to you and your family. And it shows that God is going to put the earth back together. He's going to do it through the call of Abraham. and those two words, get out, I'm going to make you a great nation. He wants to put your family back together. I don't know about your family. Your family might be like mine. You know, I look at my wife's family and it seems really weird. Because she has two brothers and two sisters and they all have the same mom and dad. I mean, how weird is that? (laughs) Then you have my family, five brothers and five of us. Two brothers and two sisters. So my my, my wife and I both have the same. She has two brothers and two sisters. I have two brothers and two sisters. But in my case, we have, I I couldn't even count the number of moms and dads that are represented by our five children. Right? I mean, my brother and I, we have the same mom but different dads. And then my sister has a different mom and a different dad because she's adopted. Then my older sister has a different mom and a different dad because, or the same dad but a different mom because she's adopted. And then my older brother has a different mom and a different dad. If you're confused, that's my normal. That's my normal, right? So I don't know what your normal is, what your family is, but very likely it's a little weird, a little idiosyncratic, a little strange. And having been the pastor here now for a year, we just celebrated our one-year anniversary, you know, I've gotten to know some of your families, and they're sufficiently weird. (laughs) Right? There are some families here that are troubled, there are some families here that are broken, there are some families here that have needs, there are some families... Let me tell you something, God is not just in the business of putting you back together personally in some private religious sense, divorced from the people and those around you. God wants to put your family back together. I just had a dear sister approach me in the foyer today, dear sister, I won't call her out by name, but she said, hey look, you know, I got a grandson and I got a son who don't really go to church anymore. There's a lot of that in this church. Family member, friend, brother, sister, grandson, granddaughter, son, daughter, they don't really go to church anymore. They're not really connected to the covenant anymore. They're they're sort of distant. Many of them are not distant from God, praise Jesus. They're just sort of disconnected from a community, from a church. Well, I tell you, God not only wants to put our family back together, God wants to put this church family back together. Do you believe that? Do you think there are people that should be sitting here this morning? I think there are people that woke up this morning that would love to be here, but they feel like they can't come. They used to come here. They used to feel comfortable here. This used to be their home. But if they came today, they would feel like, man, I don't know if this is my home anymore. I don't know if I belong here anymore. They, they couldn't bring themselves to come. I don't know a lot of these people because I've only lived here for a year, but some of you have been here for more than a decade. Maybe you could call one of those people. Maybe you could tell them, hey, look, God is doing something at Kingscliff, and it's a friendly place, it's a happy place, and I know that there's some drama and some things in the past, but man, we just would love to have you back. We would love to have you back. I would love to have you back. Make it personal. Say, hey, I just want... We think one day they're just going to come walking in. Well, maybe they'll walk in because of an invitation. Maybe you're going to call them this week and say, hey, look, man, God is really doing something in my life. God is doing something at church, and I want you to be a part of it, and, man, I just miss seeing you. There might be a lot of water under the bridge, but I want to tell you something. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, God puts people back together. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, God puts people back together. He heals hurts. He heals not only people, he heals families. He heals church families. And the last thing I want to say here, I'm going to invite Britt and Mel to come up and sing a song, is that God wants to put you back together. My hope and my prayer, I have a lot of hopes and prayers for the Kingscliff Church, but none greater than this. You guys need a couple mics? You're good? I have a lot of hopes and prayers for the Kingscliff Church, but I'll tell you this no hope or no prayer of mine for this church is bigger or more important I think than this I want this place to be a healing place a place where people can be healed personally where they can be healed emotionally thank you so much to Lynn for your small group where people can be healed physically where people can be healed relationally right some people have are burned by the church or they have done the church wrong they need to be healed ecclesiastically by the church This, we just, let's do our best by the power of God, by the outpouring of the Spirit to make this a healing place so that the blessing that God intended on Abraham, when he's going to put the world back together, both this way and this way, can, can happen in this place, in this building. Amen? All right, we're going to have a beautiful song.